All right, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Morning. morning. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for coming this morning. Uh, today, we're going to look at the end of 1 Samuel. So if you will, uh, you can either turn uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 31 in your Bibles, or um, I've got the text for you um, on the handout. Uh, let's begin by uh, reading our passage this morning. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel... And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and uh, Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, And those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh. And fasted seven days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, today. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for your word. And um, Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning. Lord, we pray that um, you would capture our hearts or that all the things that are on our minds, on our hearts, um, as Thanksgiving is coming up and the holidays, or that uh, you would be first in our hearts. Lord, uh, just pray that you would be glorified during this time, and uh, or that you would instruct us and build us up. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have reached the end of 1 Samuel and come to Saul's death. Um, there's a couple things here. Well, on one hand, uh, this is expected, right? We've kind of sensed that something was going to happen all the way back in 1 Samuel 15, when Samuel pronounced... Uh, that the Lord has torn the kingdom from Saul's hands. And from that point on, we've had this sort of um, issue going on between, uh, Sam, between Saul and David. We saw also in 1 Samuel 26, as um, David stands over the head of Saul fast asleep, um, that he has a chance to, to take matters into his own hands. And yet, David trusts in the Lord that he will strike down Saul Uh, and thus refuses to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And we also saw in 1 Samuel 28, very clearly, 
that after being conjured up, Samuel pronounces judgment on Saul. He says, the Lord will give Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. So this is uh, an expected event. It's also, I think, a tragic event. Um, the demise of Saul is uh, the ultimate end of his uh, rebellion, his unbelief and disobedience. You know, just the night before, he was with the medium at Endor, and Samuel says, the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. Just utterly chilling words, something that you would certainly hope uh, never to hear about yourself. There's also a sense in which it's tragic because he is the king. He's the king of Israel. He is the representative of the Lord as Israel's ruler. There's a sense in which Saul's defeat here, his death, is not just a military or political defeat, but it's also, in a sense, a religious one. This would be perceived by the Philistines that their gods have claimed victory over Yahweh. And so this is, a sense, a, a disgrace and very a dishonorable thing. Well, let's turn to our text this morning. I've got, um, I see it breaking into three sections in verses 1 through 7, we see Saul's death. In the second section, verses 8 through 10, we have the Philistine spoils. And then third, um, Jabesh Gilead's gratitude, verses 11 through 13. So the narrator, he, just, he thrusts us right into the middle of the battle. All right, the Philistines have they've pushed Israel all the way back to Mount Gilboa. Um, and many Israelites have fallen, and including Saul's sons, including Jonathan. We also see Abinadab and Malkishua are also among those. This is where Saul meets his ultimate demise, Mount Gilboa. The, the narrator tells us the battle surrounds Saul and becomes heavy. And Saul suffers numerous wounds from the Philistines' archers. So realizing that his end is near, Saul commands his armor bearer. These are the last words of Saul recorded in scripture. Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Out of fear, his armor bearer refuses. And so Saul ends up taking his own life by falling on his own sword. And then his armor bearer follows suit. And the narrator summarizes quickly, thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day. The narrator also ends the scene by saying that the Israelites who were on the other side of the valley saw what happened um, out Gilboa, and they fled, and the Philistines took up residence in their homes. Now, although this narrative here of Saul's death is, is terse, uh, the reader feels like the great weight of it. This, this is the fulfillment of God's judgment on Saul and his house. Right? And what we see here, I think, is the narrator pointing us to God's faithfulness to his word. And the tragedy of Saul's demise uh, fits right within God's purpose and design. This isn't something that's outside of God's plan. This is something that as we said, as we looked at the very beginning, something we've expected, something God has, in essence, promised. Not only is it a fulfillment of God's judgment 
that we saw from the words of Samuel when he was conjured up. But I think it also points us right back to the beginning in 1 Samuel 8, whenever um, Samuel is warning the Israelites of what would happen if you take a king to become like one of the nations. And Israel refuses. This is verses 19 and 20 of Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 8. They say, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our, may, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's a huge statement. Up to this point in Israel's history, as they've entered the land, who has been fighting their battles for them? It's been the Lord. He is their commander. He is the one who has led them into battle and defeated their enemies. They're asking for a king to be like the nations, to lead them into battle. Right? So, and we also see, like in Deuteronomy and Joshua, Judges, this command to teach your sons to fight. What does that mean? It means, namely, to trust in the Lord as the leader and to follow him into battle. So we see here that Israel has forsaken the Lord as their general, as their commander for an earthly king, who, as we see now, has just fallen to one of the nations that they so desperately wanted to be like. This is an embarrassment to Israel. Well, what happens next? On the next day, we see that the Philistines, they come back to Mount Gilboa, so verses 8 through 10, and they collect their rewards. They collect their spoils. They find Saul and his sons, and they decapitate Saul. They strip him of his armor. Then they send heralds back to the land of Philistia to proclaim the good news in the temples of their deities and to their people. They put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they impale his body on the wall of Beth Shon. So why do the Philistines do all of this? What, uh, what is going on here? What does the narrator want us to, to take away from this? I think there's um, four things here. So first of all, in decapitating Saul, it not only provides the physical proof for the herald's proclamation of their victory, but it also symbolizes, obviously, the end of Saul's authority over Israel. Throughout Samuel, the term head symbolizes authority and leadership. And removing the head is a symbolic act of one assuming authority. We can think all the way back to 1 Samuel 5 whenever the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the temple of Dagon, right? The next day, the priests come, come in, and what has happened? Dagon has fallen flat. He's laying prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they prop him back up. The next day, they come back, and what's happened? Dagon has fallen again. This time, his head is removed, and his hands are removed, okay? It's a sim- symbolic here. We can also think of uh, David and Goliath. What did, what did uh, David do? He cuts off Goliath's head. He places his head in Jerusalem and keeps Goliath's armor in his own tent. And this is meant to foreshadow David's future leadership and authority. So there's a sense in which decapitating uh, Saul, taking off his head here, is a, uh, is a very symbolic act. Uh, Second, I think it's peculiar that the narrator 
uh, characterizes the Philistines' message as, as good news. Basar is the Hebrew term there. This is a term that's throughout, um, throughout the Old Testament, and especially in, in uh, Isaiah, used for the good news of the Lord's salvation. And it serves as a, as a root idea for what we get in the Gospels and then the New Testament for the Gospel. It's the good news. Um, I think it's interesting that he uses this term here. Uh, I think the narrator is using irony in this sense. So whereas, you know, in the immediate here, the defeat of Israel's king is seemingly good news, right, for the Philistines and devastating for Israel now, uh, it actually will prove not to be good news, right? Who is it good news for? It's actually good news for David, right? The path is clear now for him to become the king. And as we'll see in 2 Samuel, David will end up defeating the Philistines, and the Philistines will end up abandoning their gods. So what they, seem, what they think is good news is actually uh, bad news for them. It's good news for David. Well, they put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. This, this is a, a peculiar thing since uh, they placed the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. Um, they chose the temple of Ashtaroth, I think, because Dagon remains headless. So in the parallel passage, uh, if you look at 1 Chronicles 10, the narrator there tells us that they put Saul's head in the temple of Dagon. So though Yahweh, so there's a sense in which uh, the presence of Yahweh uh, means something, means the demise of Dagon, uh, maybe not Ashtaroth in their minds, I don't know. But uh, so the Yahweh here is decapitated by Dagon. The Philistines return the favor by decapitating Israel's king, and which now symbolizes in their minds the loss of, God, of the God of Israel's head. And next, they impale Saul and his son's bodies on the wall of Beth Shan. This is a city in northern Israel that was occupied by the Philistines. And so by placing their bodies there, it would be like rubbing salt in the wounds. It would be very humiliating to Israel. Well, the narrator doesn't leave us there. Next, we read about the actions of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. In verses 11 through 13, what I've titled, Jabesh-Gilead's Gratitude. So the people of Jabesh-Gilead are furious with the way in which the Philistines treated Saul. So they do something brave. They do something daring. All their valiant men, they go and they retrieve the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall. They bring them back to Jabesh and they burn them. They bury them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and they fast for seven days. Well, why, why would they do this? Why would the people of Jabesh-Gilead do this? Well, we find the answer to this back in chapter 11. If you will flip over to 1 Samuel 11 with me, and we'll read uh, the first 11 verses there. All right, it says, it reads, the, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. 
Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are, that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, uh, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, and 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 that no two of them were left together. So you can imagine how the people of Jabesh Gilead feel about Saul. They have pledged their allegiance to him. Right? Nahash has come and he is besieging them and they ask, for, um, they ask for a treaty and he says, under one condition, that I get to gouge out your right eye. Right? So the elders, as we saw, they ask for seven days of rest to go out and see if anybody can come to their rescue and the Lord raises up Saul. It's like the one good thing Saul does in his, uh, in his time. And then he delivers them. And so they pledge their allegiance to Saul. So the, the people of Jabesh Gilead do this out of gratitude and loyalty to Saul. Um, it is interesting if you, uh, if you read the, um, in 1 Chronicles 10, the parallel passage over there, that um, his bones were buried under an oak tree. Here, the narrator says it's buried under a tamarisk tree. Um, and a number of uh, commentators note that this foreshadows the ascension of David to Saul's throne. Um, and they point back to um, what the narrator could be doing here is thinking all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 6, where Saul sits under a tamarisk tree. And there he's seeking information about David's location, and he warns the people to not expect any favors from the sons of Jesse. As one commentator says, ironically, when the, Jabesh, when the Jebusites bury Saul under the tamarisk, it reminds the reader that the next occupant of the throne certainly will not be from Benjamin. Well, so they fast for seven days. Why seven days? Well, because they were given seven days respite. So it's a reminder of the seven days of rest that they were given uh, in which they were then delivered. Well, this is the end of 1 Samuel. It ends with Yahweh seemingly defeated by the Philistine gods, Israel humiliated by the loss of her king, and an apparent vacancy on the throne of Israel. So, who will claim the throne? Right? Um, on the surface, uh, the circumstances may seem dire, but, um, but to us, the careful readers, we know the circumstances are all by design. Yahweh will reign 
over Israel through a king of his own choosing, Yahweh will make a covenant with this king, promising him a son who will reign on his throne for all eternity. Here we get a sense of what's coming, what's to come. Well, as we've come to the end of the book, I think here uh, we can have a couple of reflections, make a couple of reflections. I think, first of all, the natural one is to reflect on Saul. Who was Saul? Right, as I've tried to make the case, Saul, I think, is a, he's a tragic figure. Uh, he's forced to take up a position that he really didn't want. Uh, Israel's sinful and rebellious desires to be like the nations were forced upon him. And in a sense, he behaves just like any other king of the nations. Just as Samuel warned Israel in 1 Samuel 8. So, as such, uh, Saul is an emblem of Israel's rejection of the Lord um, as her king. Um, There's a couple of parallels, I think, that the narrator wants us to make. Um, Chapter 31, uh, this is the morning after uh, chapter 28, when Saul goes to see the medium of Endor. And so sandwiched in between this are these two episodes of David, right, where he goes and he rescues uh, these people's homes uh, and uh, defeats Israel's enemy. So in these final chapters, and, and obviously the narrator has been comparing the two of them all throughout, right? Um, and we saw this at the cave. We saw this whenever um, David's standing over Saul as he's asleep. Um, but in these final chapters, what we see here is we see David restores the people of God through recapturing their households. He then unifies Israel, and then he acts justly by establishing this law, by establishing justice that all of the spoil gets shared among everybody, that everybody gets what they lost back. We also... Whereas David does that, what we see Saul do is he breaks God's law by seeing a medium. He brings an embarrassing defeat on Israel. And the Israelites on the other side of the valley, they lose their homes. They abandon their homes out of fear. And the Philistines inhabit them. There's also um, a sense in which the end calls us back to the beginning. And we can think of Eli, and I think the narrator wants us to go back to the beginning and compare Saul and Eli. Here God, as we saw at the beginning, God fulfills his word to reject Eli and his house for the wickedness of his sons. Eli's house is brought to a tragic end by the hand of the Philistines at Aphek, which as we saw in uh, 1 Samuel um, 29, which was like the staging center for the Philistine army and the beginning of, of Saul's end. Eli's sons also die in battle to the Philistines. And then what's really interesting is the way in which um, the author here uses the term kavod, meaning weighty or heavy or glory. So the narrator connects, what he does is he connects the heaviness surrounding the events of Eli and Saul uh, with the loss of glory. Consider this. When Eli hears the news of the death of his sons, he falls back in his chair and he breaks his neck. And the narrator makes this comment. For he was old and heavy. Following this, uh, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. 
And uh, whenever news reaches um, Eli's daughter-in-law that all of these things have happened, she dies due to the weight of all of the news. And her handmaid names her child, remember? Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel. So you hear that Saul is fatally wounded by the heavy battle around him. And as Israel's king, he represents Israel's God. And his death is perceived not just as a military and political victory, but also a religious victory. So as Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, his head in the temple of Dagon, his body impelled on the wall of Bashan, the Philistines believe that their gods have defeated Yahweh and that the glory of the Lord has abandoned Israel. Well, there's also a sense in which the beginning calls us to consider the end. As, as Israel's first king, Saul, in a way, we can think of uh, Christ as Israel's final king. Whereas Saul was uh, beheaded for his own rebellion and disobedience, Christ's head was wounded with a crown of thorns for our transgressions and our iniquities. Whereas Saul's headship represents Israel's abandonment of God and Saul's decapitation, God's abandonment of Saul himself, Christ's headship brings peace and eternal life. See Romans 5. Whereas God abandons Saul for his disobedience and God abandons his son on the cross for our disobedience, however, Saul's head is rotting in the temple of Dagon, Christ's body is raised from the grave. Saul's death is one of defeat and shame. Christ's death is one of victory and glorification. I think, um, I think the author of Hebrews captures this really beautifully in chapter 2, in verses 9 through 11. He says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers." You notice the, the kingly language that the author of Hebrews uses here. He says, crowned with glory and honor. See, the author of Hebrews, he's telling us of the U-shaped story of Christ here, where Christ, God the Son, comes and uh, humbles himself, and in humility and, and humiliation, he dies on the cross, and then in his exaltation, he's raised from the dead and ascends to the right hand of God. And in doing this, he is our founder, the founder of our salvation. The Greek term there can mean something also like commander or leader. Okay? And in doing this, the picture is we are um, all um, imprisoned by sin. And as our commander, as the general who brings salvation... He rescues us. He breaks us out of prison. And in doing so, he engrafts us into himself. He engrafts us into his story, into his trajectory, so that we are ascended with him and sit with him in glory. He calls us sons of glory. 
biblical teaching on Christology and soteriology or the doctrine of Christ and salvation can really be boiled down to a simple, a simple phrase, I think, where God the Son becomes the Son of God and makes us sons of glory. And I think the author of Hebrews is, is doing that very thing for us uh, here in, in Hebrews 2. So I think uh, in this way we can contrast uh, Saul and Christ, and particularly um, as, as headship goes. Um, well, let me pray for us, and then uh, I'll see if there's any questions, and then um, I have a question or two. Let's see if you guys uh, want to have a discussion for a few minutes. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for First Samuel. We thank you for all the things that you've taught us through this about yourself and about us. We thank you for, um, uh, for your covenant faithfulness in, um, in bringing us uh, to yourself. We thank you for uh, sending your son uh, to die on the cross for our sins and from being raised from the dead so that he may be the founder of our salvation, that he may uh, free us from enslavement to sin so that we can be sons of glory. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to worship you together uh, this next hour. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me first just see if there's any questions. Okay. Well, we have a couple minutes. Uh, so I think uh, since we've come to the end here, um, what sort of things does... First Samuel teach us about God and ourselves. What sort of things have you guys learned throughout this series on First Samuel? Yeah. As the Those words were 
So like, what sort of things about God would you say 1 Samuel's teaching us? Like, what sort of things can we say about God? Does it teach us? We've said some of these things already, but anything else? Yeah, he keeps his promises. God is, God is faithful in keeping his word. I mean, it may not happen in our timing, that's for sure, right? Um, when you think of David, right? I mean, he had to wait quite a long time and suffer a lot of uh, hardship um, to eventually become the king. Um, but we see him ultimately resting in God's word, right? I mean, think about him uh, at the cave and standing over the head of Saul as he sleeps and Saul's spear is right there, <laughs> right? Uh, he, had, he had his opportunities, but he, he chose to, to trust to trust the Lord, that the Lord will take care of Saul in his own timing. I'm sure there are circumstances in, in your life and other circumstances in my life where that's a comforting thing to know that, that God, is, God is in control. He's, he's doing things according to his plan, and he is sovereign, and we're called to rest in that. 